Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. Oh, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. The you dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. The other thing I wanted to throw in here, we use the word disinflation. What is disinflation? Is How is that different than deflation? If you still have inflation, it's still inflating, but you have less inflation than you did. So say it was up to $2 and it's now come down to $1.70, but it used to sell for $1.50. You're still inflated from a year ago, but you're disinflated from just a short while ago. And if we get it down to $1.20, that's disinflation. We're now down below where prices were for an extended period of time. That's deflation. Disinflation just means the inflation's not as fast as it was or it's slightly less than it was, but the price is still higher than it was a year ago. I know that's a weird way of looking at it. Why do we have to just say that? But it's disinflationary instead of inflationary. It's kind of like when the, when the GDP goes from 2% to 1%, we didn't have a drop in GDP. We still had growth in GDP. We just had a slowdown in GDP. So when people said, our GDP dropped, no, we're still making more than we did last year. Any way you measure it, the growth in GDP slowed down. Disinflation is the growth in inflation slowing down. We have a bevy, a slew, a large number of questions waiting for us this week. Uh, I won't say a plethora, but I just did. Uh, but we have a lot. The questions beginning with Scott's question, um, and I'm going to read the question. The, the subject is a air quote or air, a, a quote, what is it question for Saturday show. Uh, from a historical perspective, governments have all performed the same way. With war or some other crisis, the government starts running out of money, so they start printing money possibly in excess. The U.S. government has printed maybe too much money too quickly, and the effects of this are now hitting us in the form of higher rents and soaring prices for food, necessities, and luxuries. It seems that, the mo that most of the time the full effects from a government's fiscal action or an economic event are not realized in some, 
until somewhere around 18 months later. Just a short observation. In your opinion, was it possible was it possible for a better execution of the pumping of new money into the economy and with it the possibility of a better outcome? Or was it executed in the correct way and the mix of world events brought us to our current situation? This is kind of like knowing how much antibiotics to take when you have an infection um, from a kind of a medical perspective. So I'm answering the question now. Um, when money gets pumped into the economy, we have to say, why is it, when would it be a good idea for the government to turn and pump money into the economy? Well, um, I can go through a list of very easy statements that, that I think everybody can agree on. When a massive natural disaster occurs, a hurricane, an earthquake, and the insurance companies may not have the ability ability to meet the demand for all of the damage because it's so much well the government typically will step in at that point and it's one of the areas that is the true purpose of government going back to the very first governments to protect us in a war situation and to help us in an emergency that's beyond what was expected by anybody who was planning for emergencies so pumping money into the economy should be by the government should be based in very specific concepts, emergency use only type things. Um, and that's pretty good baseline foundational economics. When the pandemic hit, we pumped a tremendous amount of money into our economy. But at the same time, Europe did not. And China did not. The UK did not. Their stimulus programs, if they had any at all, were tiny in comparison to what we did. We, we pumped out trillions of dollars of worth of cash. And you would think, well, if, it, if it's just about the supply of money, then the United States should have about a 25% inflation rate and Europe and China shouldn't be experiencing inflation at all. And yet, when we look at it, the inflation rate in the United States, depending on if it's core or non-core, is between five and a half and eight and a half percent. The inflation rate in Europe is double digit on the bottom end of that and high double digit on the top end of that. So what's, what's going on here? And this is, this is a, a truism across the board. Inflation isn't only a supply issue, just like there's, when you talk about supply and demand, if you just said supply, you're missing a big chunk of the equation. Our demand went through the roof during the pandemic and our ability to get the items, the supply of those items was low. This is true across the world, not just the United States. We happen to have more money from the stimulus, but this is something we've covered on the program before. When we look at bank account balances, as, as you know, we're looking at the money supply as a whole, the big gargantuan numbers of money supply in the United States, we're still sitting on this massive stockpile of cash. It's not moving around. It's not leaving people's bank accounts to make really big purchases like you would expect if we're seeing runaway inflation. In fact, people are hanging on to their savings at a rate that we haven't seen before so when you think about it from a perspective of just supply, the, the money supply has increased our inflation in the United States, but at a 
minuscule portion of it. The main inflation has come from lack of products that we all want. Uh, you know, I'm saying over the last several weeks that our supply chain issues are getting ironed out. If you can iron a chain um, without burning yourself, I recommend it. If you can't, then, then you'll have to figure out how to get the wrinkles out of your chain some other way. I just love to mix metaphors. So getting the supply chains worked out, we're still running into issues. Um, I know of people that are trying to buy a new Ford pickup truck in the uh, $20,000 to $30,000 range. And you've got MSRP out there on new pickup trucks and you know, the Maverick is out there and you can get that, except that there's nobody that has them to sell. They're listed on websites, but you can't get them yet because they're not out there, which means that people are willing to buy them for tremendously more than the MSRP. They're saying, I want this car, I'll spend $10,000 extra to own it. Well, you could say, well, they wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't have extra money on hand. Except that the people that I'm talking about doing this with, they don't have extra money on hand. They're getting a bigger loan. So that's part of inflation. The money hitting had much less to do with inflation this time around than it has in the past. It doesn't mean it's not a component. And this is, I, I wish I could just spend five hours talking about what happens, what is inflation. Inflation is any time uh, you pay more for something that's the same something. There's no value increase for it. Anytime you pay more for it. And I was explaining this to my seven-year-old daughter. Um, if three people want to buy your seashell and there's only one seashell, your price is probably going to go up. But if nobody wants to buy your seashell and you really want to sell it, your price is going to go down. She got that. We don't have enough automobiles. We don't have enough um, baby formula. We don't, for a while, didn't have enough toilet paper. When you have a constraint on the supply, prices will go up. That's what's happening in Europe. They didn't have this big influx of cash. Their supply has been constrained. And they're wealthy. We're wealthy. Uh, this last little component I'm going to throw in here because I get a lot on it and it makes sense with this question. We have a bunch of other questions to go to next. But the, the concept of this, this is one I've got lots this week. When the Biden administration forgives these student loans, what is that going to do to inflation? And you're going to have to bear with me on this because this is a funny one. Nothing. nothing yeah, you said it. Nothing, you said nothing. Nothing at all. So, And people go, wait a minute. He's forgiving all this debt. How is this not inflationary? The money that they were spending on this is going to be used for other things and it's going to be in competition with other people. And my response to that is, they're not using that money right now for student loans. We've got it on pause and have had it on pause for two years. So if they continue more, more. to spend the money exactly as they are today, what, what is going to happen in January when student loans go off their moratorium, when they're not being stopped, nobody's paying right now, when they start being paid again, we're going to see some of the extra money in the economy go away. If some of the student loans are forgiven, there's, there's merits or, or pros and cons to forgiving the student loans. That's not the subject matter. I'm just saying what would be the direct inflationary impact of forgiving these loans? And the answer is nothing. 
because they're not currently being paid. The money that is being used to pay them is already being spent on other things. That may be part of the inflation that we're experiencing today, that people don't have to pay their student loans, so they're buying other stuff and causing the prices to go up. So it, from a perspective of, is the sky falling? No. Is it a good idea to repay the student loans? That's purely politics. It really is. We can look at that and say, I think having a good education, a well-educated society is really important for innovation, but whether or not you forgive some student loans on this person or that person is pure politics. And at this point has very little to do with inflation. And the student loan forgiveness issue, by the way, is totally bipartisan. In March, 2020, not at this it was moment, president. it's not. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I know, but I mean, it really is bipartisan. Right. It was, it was President Trump who signed the moratorium on payments. In other words, you may have the loans, but you don't have to make payments on them. Which okay. is the same thing as not having a loan or having them temporarily forgiven. And now we're talking basically the another president from another party comes along and he says, those loans that you haven't been making payments on, you don't ever have to make payments. But on. only only on some of the balance. There's still... On a, some of it. Yeah. 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 And, and so when we look at it, we get it. Is it a good idea to do it now or not do it now? That just purely depends on politics, on whether or not the government should own an asset that's debt on student loans. That's completely different. Um, When it comes down to, we've got to play some commercials is what it comes down to. Uh, Inflationary impact of it is non-existent because the payments aren't being made currently. Uh, That's just math. And math is easier to look at and say, yep, that's not politics, that's math. Uh, no inflation problems with the student loan forgiveness. Other problems, maybe. Don't. That's all politics, though. And we have a series of other questions waiting for us. We've got one from Eric about uh, it's not gasoline should that should worry us. It's diesel. We've got uh, several from Inquisitor John. So do you want to hit Eric's question? I know you've been waiting with bated breath. Well, the issue is that um, it was from the American thinker that he sent uh, an article, and he says that diesel is in short supply. It is, uh, but it's not in critically short supply. Why do I say that? Um, Because the price of diesel hasn't gone up a bunch. It's higher than gasoline. It used to be lower than gasoline. Uh, A lot of diesel is being used. You can tell when there comes a critical supply shortage of any commodity because the price will go up substantially. And the price of diesel has not gone. Matter of fact, it's lower now than it was, I think, six months ago. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, you can, you can look at the numbers and you can see almost anything. Why is the price of diesel higher today? Why is there a shortage of diesel today? Very simply, because a nation that is supplying that historically in the last 10 years or so has supplied a very significant quantity of the petroleum, the stuff you pump out of the ground to the world, isn't supplying it anymore because we put sanctions on them and the Europeans put sanctions on them because they were using the income from that petroleum to finance an invasion in Ukraine. So since there's a shortage and demand is recovering very, has recovered very nicely since the pandemic, the price goes up, the supplies go down. That's just what happens in the real world. And, and a big piece of that is not that there is insufficient refining capacity in the United States, although it wouldn't hurt us to expand our refining capacity at all. 
But diesel in Europe is astronomically high priced right now, as is gasoline, by the way. Gasoline in Europe is roughly twice the price it is in the United States. Um, so if you're making diesel in your Exxon or whoever, and you've got a refinery and you're making diesel in your refinery, and you have a choice between selling it in Europe for twice the price that you can sell in the United States or selling it in the United States, the only thing that keeps you from selling the majority of your diesel to Europe is the fact that it's hard to get it to Europe. And that's it in a nutshell. It's a, We have a free market system. We don't have the government telling oil companies where they have to sell their fuel. So if the price of diesel goes up in the rest of the world, it goes up here too because we ship a significant amount of diesel out of the United States. Matter of fact, one of the things that I think people don't get is the oil, much of the oil imported, we still import oil in the United States, but why do we import the oil? Because we have the refineries. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia still sends oil to the United States to be refined into what are called distillates, things like diesel and gasoline and so on, to be shipped back out of the United States because we have the refineries to do it and much of the rest of the world doesn't. So it, it's a complex issue. And is there, is there a shortage of diesel? Yes. Is there a shortage of gasoline? Yes. Uh, we are producing a lot of oil in the United States, but when there's a shortage someplace else, a lot of what we have is going to be sold where the prices are higher because we have a free market system. And that's where we are now. We could be like China or like some other countries in the world and tell the, and establish some form of dictatorship where the president says you can't export oil anymore. And the end result of that, by the way, would be that would make oil temporarily very gasoline and diesel in the United States much cheaper for a short period of time. Why I say a short period of time, a few years, because the companies that produce it, if the United States said you can't sell it wherever you want to sell it, would go produce it someplace. They'd start building refineries someplace that said they could sell it wherever they wanted to sell it. And so there's we're in a free market system and we're in a free market system and you lose supply prices go up and, and and our reserves go down that's just the reality of a free market system is that a good answer yeah yeah so uh, the other parts we wanted to come talk about the global eco economic situation um the global economy is heading toward a recession and you'll see headlines about that and you'll see people say we're for sure heading for a global recession that should not imply that we're for sure heading for a United States re recession. I think you and I both agree completely on the global recession is a reality. We're probably already in it. The United States is likely to have a recession in the next 18 months sometime. By likely, we would say much higher than 50%. We've had this sustained inverted yield curve. We still have big economic activity, but the Federal Reserve is still pushing the brake pedal pretty hard and is likely to raise rates again another three-quarter points. Whether or not that is a bad recession is the next question. It's, it's possible we don't even have a recession. If we have a recession, what I just quoted on the money supply numbers, we're sitting on a lot of money and we're sitting on extremely low unemployment, which means a recession in those situations tends to be pretty mild. You, you were going to add something? Well, one of the things we subscribe to, which is not cheap, by the way, is Moody's. Um, and, and they do economic forecasts. And one of the reasons, Mark Sandy, who is the head of their uh, economics, who, who does that, uh, who's the lead guy there, called the recession in 2007 accurately in advance. 
He called everything that happened 2007 in advance. He has hit the nail on the head so consistently over the years that I really think he and his staff are, 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 are my prime sources of, of, of information and guesses about the future right now, which is all any of us can do. They are saying that there is a high probability that the Federal Reserve will be able to engineer a soft landing. What's a soft landing? That includes a mild recession. Uh, I can remember the recession in the early 1990s. We were talking, we were counting trucks. Uh, was it the early 1990s? At some point in there, there was a recession. I think it was 19, in the 1990s. Uh, yeah, it was in the 1990s. We were counting, we were on the radio, so it had to be after 1996. Anyway. Oh, uh, yeah. So, two, uh, 2000, 2001 area, we were counting trucks, definitely. And we said this recession is not as bad as it seems, as the market seems to suggest that it is, because the truck counts were high. So, when there's a recession, and it, and, and like we technically in the first two quarters of this year had negative GDP, I didn't feel it. You didn't feel it. Uh, restaurants certainly didn't feel it. Retailers didn't feel it. So even though we technically had a negative GDP and could have called that a recession by the old standard, it was a recession that didn't happen. And we could wind up next year with a recession that doesn't happen. Yeah. So one of the, this is going to fit this in here really easily. One of the largest components in a traditional recession one of the things that for many years people says was maybe the sole cause of recessions was inappropriate inventory buildup. So what does that mean? Well, if you're a company and you're selling anything, toilet paper, widgets, doesn't matter. You've had this incredible demand. You cannot meet the demand. They are trying to buy more than you have. So you order more. And they're still trying to buy more than you have. And you order more. And there's a delay in the shipments. And so you order even more. You try to find other sources to get it from. Because people are trying to give you money. If you're in a for-profit business, you probably want to receive that money. So how do you get more toilet paper to sell? Toilet paper is just the example, but it's a good one. Well, you try to find it from as many manufacturers as you can. Because the ones you used to use aren't able to provide it. And all of those manufacturers go into overdrive, producing as much as they possibly can because the demand just drove, drove through the roof. We got to get as much toilet paper out there as we just get it rolling, get it rolling. Literally. Literally. Rolling. So they're rolling up the toilet paper. They're sending it out. And eventually it all arrives and generally all arrives at once. And you don't have room at your store to store all the toilet paper. It's rolling on the floor now. So what do you do? Well, you have a toilet paper sale eventually, which means you're probably selling the toilet paper at less than you bought it for. And when I look at Target and at Best Buy and at Walmart and at Amazon and at, you can just keep going down the line. Their inventory buildup is too great. It's part of the reason why we've had negative GDP all year so far is because they bought a bunch of inventory, they paid the money for it, and they haven't got the profit for selling it yet because now everybody has enough toilet paper. Now, there's still areas that we're behind in. Baby food formula, baby formula. That stuff is hard to get still. 
So people are still trying to buy it from every source possible. And the amount of orders out there for the manufacturing is way more than the demand might be when it all shows up. So this inventory imbalance is what has caused recessions for, for centuries. You've got way too much stuff. Now you got to sell it at a massive discount. You're probably going to lose some money doing it. You might have to lay people off. Well, with all this inflation, you would think discounts would be good. Well, that's the kind of recession that we expect to see. All of these companies have built up major, major inventories on things that they have to get rid of. A lot of stuff, Best Buy, for instance, has a bunch of electronics that it just couldn't get for a long time, and now it's got an oversupply of it. Target has clothing and toilet paper and go down the list, and Walmart too, and Amazon too, which means that this holiday season, I expect prices to be down. I expect major sales to occur. It's not gonna be good for the earnings for the bottom line of these companies that have these major inventory buildups. But that would be a primary cause of a recession um, in this mild type sense. It's just keep that in mind. As long as we have lots of money on hand and our unemployment is low, expect to see some layoffs. And we mentioned this two weeks ago that the Federal Reserve has two competing agendas. Number one, protect the money supply, make sure we don't have big inflation or big deflation. Number two, protect employment, protect full employment. Well, the Federal Reserve believes that full employment is right around 4%, and we're about 3.5%, which means that it half a percent increase in unemployment is well within their realm of opportunity. They say 4% is fine. Let's get some layoffs. We're not going to make this easy on businesses to expand or to hire, and you guys already have a bunch of inventory buildups, so you're going to have to eventually start selling it at a small loss, which is going to lead to some layoffs. That's what I would say the next research, recession looks a bit like. Yes, go ahead. The, it's important to note, and we published this in the newsletter, if you follow the consumer price index numbers in detail, which I think very few of you do, we do, um, disinflation is underway for goods. The stuff you buy at the store as a whole, now costs less than it did two months ago. Yeah. Now, some things have still gone up. Some things have gone down. But what we're seeing is both imports into the United States costing less, largely because the dollar is higher, and sales at the wholesale level, have the prices have dropped significantly. As stores are emptying out their inventory, they're dropping prices. So, we are already seeing the disinflation underway. Now, the other thing is, and we mentioned this in the newsletter too, the sale, the disinflation or inflation for goods, that's the stuff you buy at store or online, typically leads services. Services inflation is still high. Why? It is really hard to find enough workers. And when there's a shortage of workers, and there's a high demand for workers the price goes up, that's wages. People have more money to spend. They spend more money and we get inflation. So that's what the Fed is trying to ratchet yeah. down right now. And, and, and they've said that in their speeches that they're trying to get prices down on services. That's going to be a really hard job. There's a, there's a category of prices that once they go up, they tend to stick up there. They're called sticky prices in economics which, you know, we use these wonderful terms all the time. At least we got one that sounds like it's chewing gum. Uh, 
sticky prices. Local rents, when they move up, they tend to stay there. Why? Because the people that set the rent do it maybe once a year, probably less than that. And two, they tend to be small owners. When you're setting a rent price, it's based on a house that you own in a city you used to live in, or you bought a fourplex at some point. But generally speaking, the vast majority of rental is still mostly owned on a small scale. And those prices tend, when they go up, to not go down. Because if if you got $1,000 a month last year for rent, lowering it to $900 a month really doesn't feel good. Where that's a normal decision at Walmart to say, hey, the price is too high on the canned beans, we need to lower it. Uh, as a small business owner, a small real estate owner, it's hard to lower those prices. The same is true for plumbing and electric, electrician use. Most plumbing is small business. Most electrician, small business. So when they raise their hourly rate, that feels good. They're the ones that set that, and they're not as nimble in lowering it. So on the services side, it takes more to bring that down. If you've tried to hire a plumber or an electrician lately, it's mostly try because there's not enough of them. And if you've got a good relationship with them, you, you may have hired them, but the price is up. That's something that the Federal Reserve is looking at. Yeah, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary, personalized, customized investment advice and portfolio management to those of higher net worth. Uh, there's a local number during the during the weekend that has voicemail during the week, real live people answering. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail and we'll get back with you. Uh, the local number is? 254 254- Nine four seven eleven eleven, or you can reach that same line toll free at one eight hundred nine one four seven five two six. That's eight hundred nine fourteen plan. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can uh, read our newsletter, sign up for our newsletter, uh, listen to radio programs going back lots and lots of years. You can go find us podcasts wherever podcasts are found. You can contact us through our contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.